Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Wonderful. Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Matthew 21 verses 1 through 11 says, And as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal the of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna meaning save us in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. If you're taking notes in your journals today, we're on page 94. Uh, as I mentioned, we are at the final Sunday of Lent. And we're beginning the final week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. And, and we've spent time journeying with Jesus over these past weeks in his Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking about the kingdom that was to come and the invitation that he has for his followers. To, to be different, to see different, to act differently, to have the motivation of their hearts be completely transformed, to live differently. And here, now in this, this opening scene for the passion narrative, we see those words in action. If the Sermon on the Mount is his kingdom manifesto, then Passion Week is the featured centerpiece for all of us to see what this call to live and be in the kingdom actually looks like. So wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, this is an invitation for us to look at Jesus. To consider where our hearts might be at, where might our hearts might be and where it might take us and where we might be at and how it might transform us to actually follow the way of Jesus. And perhaps we've lost a little bit of that way, how it's become simplistic and sanitized. But I think every year I get this reminder at Easter that it was anything but. And this story here on Palm Sunday also gets a little bit of a, uh, a makeover of sorts. It feels incredibly jubilant. This is a celebration. They're declaring Hosanna. But we've, we've lost what's really taking place in many ways. So we're going to recount what takes place on that Palm Sunday. And we're going to hear what, what was so shocking that Jesus was actually doing. This past week, we, uh, we celebrated uh, Matthew's 
birthday, and it was his fourth birthday. So we all know that's a big deal for a four-year-old. Fourth birthday, fifth birthday, sixth birthday. I don't know when it stops being a big deal, but it is a big deal. He was so excited, so joyful. Every bit of the day meant so much to him, from the wrapping paper to the presents to the cake to people being there. He was over the moon. This was this joyous moment for him. And we have moments like this in our life where we can think about it. Maybe it is your birthday. Maybe you're a birthday person and every single year you can't wait till you get all of those pieces. And you don't have to be four. You can be 34. You can be 44. You can be 50. It doesn't matter. It, it just is a big deal for you. For, for the people of Israel in this moment, I, I, I look at this, this situation that's taking place and I almost think of it, we, we read it like it's a four-year-old birthday party. That everyone's just excited. Jesus is showing up on the scene. Shouldn't we be happy about that? But they were happy outside of the city. And if you noticed, they weren't too happy on the inside of it. There was layers to this that are really worth exploring. When we, were, uh, when we were in Hawaii uh, a few months ago, there was a bakery nearby. And for myself, I have, I have an incredible sweet tooth. Uh, I love myself some sweets. And to my detriment of my health, more likely than not. But I still like them. And particularly cinnamon buns. And there was this one place that it felt like it was the, the place. It felt like I had found the best cinnamon bun on the planet. It was the size of my face. It was deliciously made, and I cannot tell you what it is, but the, the dough had something special to it. Hopefully nothing, anything too special, but it was extra special. And it felt like I'd kind of like gotten to the pinnacle. This is, this is what it is. This is the ultimate cinnamon bun, and nothing gets better. We all have these kind of moments, right? Where we have like a moment with our family, or it, maybe it's far more meaningful of a moment than a cinnamon bun, but it's something that you experience, that you come to this conclusion that it does not get better than this. For, for so many of those who would have been present on that Palm Sunday, with the arrival of Jesus, with the political climate that was taking place, there would have been a sense for those who were watching Jesus' arrival and been like, this is it. This is the moment where everything changes. And in many ways, it, it was. Just not in the way that they had expected. Think of it this way. Palm Sunday for many was the moment they had experienced the oppression of Roman rule and exiles gone past and generations that have been lost and they were ready for victory. They were ready for freedom and they were ready for the arrival of Jesus. They were ready for good things to take place. No wonder they were ready to cry out as if it was a notion that was already agreed upon and set in place. No wonder they were declaring the word Hosanna, meaning save us. As if it was a foretold conclusion that the arrival of Jesus was going to be their salvation in the way that they wanted it to be. It was a good thing. There is no doubt about that. The arrival of Jesus was good. Their hopes and dreams were going to be fulfilled. 
It's just not in the way that they had imagined. And I wonder for us, when we hold our own hopes and our dreams, do we leave space for the fulfillment of those hopes and dreams to take place outside of our own imagination or control? For, for those on the scene, those were good hopes for freedom from oppression, for, for, for a life that was not under the, the hand of an authority that did not care for them, for the salvation of their people. These are good hopes and dreams, yet we're going to see the way in which they wanted that to be fulfilled was different than the manner in which Jesus was approaching it. So this morning, there's two important notes I want us to take, uh, take time to look at contextually and then one thought to consider. First note for us to, to look at, Jesus was intentional. Sometimes when we read a passage like this, it's quick to be like, well, it's, things are happening, happening supernaturally. People just know that they know that they know that Jesus is who he is and things are just falling all into place. Palm Sunday begins the last week of Jesus' life and we see it in all four Gospels. This is a significant moment. Jesus has not just arrived in Jerusalem, he has timed his arrival in Jerusalem with the week before Passover. Therefore, this week coincides with one of the most significant weeks of the year for the people of Israel within their capital city. Archaeologists tell us that around that time in the first century, Jerusalem was probably 50,000 people. And upon the, the arrival of Passover, there would be around 150,000 pilgrims from all over that would converge upon the city. They would camp in the hills and in the surrounding area, and then they would enter into Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices and to participate in the religious traditions of the day. And this is interesting to pay attention to because the people who were chanting, Hosanna, save us, many, if not all of them, were not native to Jerusalem. They had been traveling from far off, and for many that were present on that day, and they were shouting, Hosanna, save us, they were likely of a lower social demographic, more, more of a poor and oppressed nature. And they were the ones declaring, save us. So does that change the way that we hear the cry of the people? It's different when you hear Hosanna and it sounds jubilant and excited versus when you hear the voice of a people that is poor, oppressed, and beaten down saying, save us. The message is different. The atmosphere is far more charged. It feels incredibly like the perfect storm that Jesus has walked into. And we know that this was probably the case even in the way that Jesus responds. Uh, other gospel narratives beyond the one in Matthew that we read, they paint different scenes. And one of the moments that follows Jesus' arrival in the city is that Jesus goes straight to the courts of the temple and he has righteous anger and he goes and he flips tables of money exchangers and of, of those offering offerings to the poor and we're doing it at a premium because they were arriving 
saying, I don't have a, a, a lamb in which I can offer, so I need to purchase something so that I can participate in this religious tradition. And they're getting gouged, and Jesus is upset at the manner in which they're doing things. It's not just spending money in the courts for spending money in the courts. It was that they were taking advantage of the poor that were arriving for a good reason. The heart of Jesus is clearly at play all throughout. And those that were arriving, we need to be aware who they are to see really what they are saying and how Jesus is responding. They're asking Jesus, save me. And the sequence is not by accident. Because the language that Jesus uses throughout is incredibly clear. Jesus has timed it all out. We talked about the, the week in which they've arrived. Talked about the people that have converged upon the place. And now the necessary arrangements that he now asks the disciples to go do before him. So we see this in a couple different moments. But most vividly when he sends his disciples to go get the donkey and the colt. We're told that Jesus, he approaches the Mount of Olives. And don't think of the Mount of Olives like Mount Baker, this beautiful gargantuan mountain that is off in the distance. It's more like a hill uh, that just kind of overlooks the city of Jerusalem. It's not even that much higher than the city of Jerusalem. It's, it, it's not anything particularly prominent. But it's, it's really steep. And at the bottom of the hill is Bethphage, which is a village. And then there's this town of Bethany, which is also very close. And if you remember in your Bible uh, reading that Bethany is a place that Jesus has spent significant time. He knows Mary and Martha that's there and he spent time with that family. So he knows people that are there. And I imagine the, the same to be in Bethphage, that region being a space in which he spent significant time. And this is not saying that he manipulated it, but he prepared the way in which he was going to enter the city of Jerusalem because he now sends his disciples, go get the donkey from the person that I've talked to and they'll know that I've sent you when I give you the code word. So it's a little, it's a little bit of a spy mission. Gives them the code word, the Lord needs them, and he'll, he'll, he'll give it to you. This is well planned. It's okay to think of it a little bit practically. Jesus has thought it through. This is Order 66, deal with all the Jedi, except not deal with all the Jedi, just go get the donkey. Like, it's, it's really a code word that they knew. I appreciate the little bit of Star Wars laughter. That's great. The point is this, that Jesus has arranged everything. It's all intentional. And this moment, this, this seemingly joyous event is the culmination of his whole mission to announce and bring the kingdom of God into reality. And here's the thing, though it was intentional... I would say it seemed incredibly out of character for Jesus. Up until this point, whenever Jesus has performed miracles or, or done teaching, when those who have experienced the miracles want to go and tell the multitudes about the man who's done the impossible, Jesus asks them, hey, keep it on the down low. Don't, don't, don't go talk about it just yet. And then we get to this point in the story where he sends his disciples to go get a donkey so that he can go ride it into the city of Jerusalem where there are multitudes that are already converging on it and they're, chant, they're chanting Hosanna before him, behind him. And he's not telling them to stop. He's just continuing on the journey. 
this is really, really public. This is not even the first king of Israel that has ridden down on a donkey. In 2 Samuel 16, we see, we see that King David was the first after his son rebelled against him and he arrives back in Jerusalem on a donkey. The son of David, Solomon, rode the same way. So, so what was Jesus even doing in that act? Well, it's full of symbolism and meaning that Jesus is revealing in that moment who he is. He's gone from, I'm going to keep it on the down low, to I am the king that has been foretold. It's a big flip, but he's doing it intentionally. And for those that would have been around him in that moment, this is all they could have hoped for. Finally, we have found someone who's going to bring us freedom. Yet it wasn't in the way that they had wanted. Because here, Jesus, he chose a donkey of peace instead of a horse of war. Jesus disarmed his followers instead of forming an army. Jesus exposes the violence, the evil of violence instead of partnering with it. And Jesus laid down his life instead of taking someone else's. This was dramatically different from what the people wanted. But what did they actually want? I've come across this, this scenario described in, by multiple scholars and specifically by individuals by the name of Borg and Croissant, and they have this compelling argument. And they describe that there was actually two dramatic processions that would have entered Jerusalem at roughly the same time in anticipation of Passover. One procession was led by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Normally, he lived in Caesarea by the sea with, with its temple for the emperor Augustus. But for religious festivals, Pilate would always come up to Jerusalem to prevent trouble and to show his power. So a clear statement was to be made to the throngs of those who were joining in for the Passover celebration. Him saying, it is Caesar's world. This is Caesar's kingdom. Caesar is in charge here. And Pilate would arrive from the west with a military force. And then Jesus arrives from the east on a donkey. One procession is Pilate's triumphal military entry and Jesus' entry was, was somewhat different. In a world that would have had few books but many scripture readings, those who would have seen the situation playing out would have picked up Jesus' reference to Zechariah's prophecy about a king riding a donkey. But it was also a prophecy of royalty. A prophecy of, of a king to come. So I don't blame those who were watching the scene experiencing perhaps a bit of confusion. This is in line with all of the prophecies of a king to come, of freedom, of overcoming the oppressor. I should be chanting, save us. That is a good desire. That is a good hope to hold. They just didn't understand the method in which Jesus was going to do it because the people wanted a repeat. That's the second idea. The people wanted a repeat. Was Jesus the sort of king like Caesar? No. 
He's making an apparently peaceful demonstration. But they're hoping that there's more to it. Last week I mentioned the story of the Maccabee Rebellion, which had garnered a short-lived period of autonomy for the people of Israel before the Roman machine came through and conquered them again. Though short-lived, that moment of freedom was fresh in the minds of the people of Israel for generations to come. And they were convinced that the way to freedom would be found in the same way it had been achieved one time before. The Maccabee Revolution was a violent one. One that had significant cost and gave a moment of freedom. And for those that heard the stories of times gone by, this is two centuries earlier. This was still the manner in which freedom was expected to come. It would require a military operation, a conquering king, swords and blood. Jesus may have been riding on a donkey of peace to demonstrate what his method was going to be. But the response of the palms told us something different. Palm Sunday is interesting because we, we make them and we hold them. And they signify the coming of Jesus. But palms for the people of Israel as they brought them out and as they laid them before Jesus meant something diff different because the last time in which they presented palms to a conquering king upon his arrival was Judas Maccabee as he arrived to Jerusalem. The people wanted a repeat. They're saying, this is how we greeted the last conqueror. Do it again. Do it in the way that I know it can be done. I have good hopes and desires, and now let me tell you, this is how it should be done. With sword and with blood, be the conquering king that we need you to be. Everybody knew that story. And since Maccabeus' followers had waved palm branches when he entered the city, we can imagine that those holding those same branches for Jesus were wanting a repeat. We are so often limited in our imagination of what God can do. I don't know about you, but when I encounter things in life, I like to say that I learn from them. I, I have an experience and I find a way to move through it. And I, and I say to myself, well, that is a good way for me to approach it the next time. We are creatures of habit. We like to do things that work again. And this is same on a cultural level, on a society level, that we look upon the ways in which we experience success, we experience freedom for good things, for good hopes and good desires, and we isolate the manner in which God is actually able to work in the world to our own imaginations. And, and we don't even think to ourselves that how limited we are in the scope of how we think and how we breathe. Even in our current landscape, in our current situation, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. How much more imaginative can we be if we start to actually live with the possibility of the work of the Holy Spirit in the situations of conflict and struggle that we are faced with? Are we going to be those crying out, Hosanna, save us, but save us in the way that I want you to save me. 
Save us in the way that I know how. Let me show you actually, Savior of mine, that this is how salvation comes. And this is, this is what we often do as human beings. We say we want a Savior, but we want to control our salvation. We want it to be done in a manner that we're comfortable with or we've seen done before. But the invitation of the gospel is that the way in which salvation takes place in the lives of humanity throughout history is in a manner that's outside of this world. Outside of our current imagination. And it's only within the imagination of God, one of peace, one of self-sacrifice, one of generosity can we actually experience the salvation that God offers to us. We are saying save us in this way. And here's the challenge we face. Jesus was intentional in his approach and he didn't stop, stop them from crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we can have the right desires, but the wrong methods. We can have the right desires, but the wrong methods. In each of the Gospels, the story of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem is presented. And in Luke's presentation of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem... There's a detail that, that's worth noting. In Luke 19, verse 41, it said, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The sun is shining. It would seem like the crowds are cheering. He's got a red carpet ready for him to enter Jerusalem. But with his prophet's eye, he can see the disaster coming. That Pilate is coming. That the monsters of, of our hearts are coming forth. And that they didn't know about his moment of visitation of what it was going to mean. They didn't recognize the time that they were in. And they didn't recognize that they were living in the wrong kingdom. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he is weeping. Because you have the right desire. Your freedom, the hope for freedom is good. But the method that you want me to do is not mine. And the way in which I'm going to need to do this is going to shock everyone and cost me everything. There's a quote from N.T. Wright and he says this. He says, you wanted a Judas and you got a Jesus. You wanted war and I was leading you to peace. In our case, you were wanting a kingdom in heaven and I was offering you one on earth. And by opting for the heaven only one, you have abandoned earth to the monarchs and the monsters who still take the sword and will perish by the sword. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not, not of this world, therefore my methods are not either. 
right desires, freedom from tyranny, peace in the land, care for those oppressed, but the wrong method to take up the sword that drove them to their knees. And that, that's the ancient world. But I think our modern world is a petri dish of this current thinking. Mark Sayers, perhaps you've read some of his books. He has this idea that he presents to us called the kingdom without the king. Our modern Western culture is, is post-Christian. And it's ultimately the project of the West to move beyond Christianity while feasting upon its fruit. Therefore, what it does is it constantly provides off-ramps and options in which we might seemingly enjoy our faith, but without any sacrifice or commitment. Culture demands that we reshape our lives, our faith, to suit the contours of the day. And in the process, it offers us the promises of tangible freedoms and pleasures for doing so. It doesn't, doesn't actually challenge the faith that we have in our head in some kind of a apologetics debate. But rather what it does is it uses soft power. And it offers the continual background of options and incentives which actually eat away at our commitments. What is happening in the same way like it was for the people of Israel as they cried out, save us is that they wanted the fruits of the kingdom, freedom and peace and joy without the king that those things come by. And this is the narrative of our world. That we want the kingdom without the king. And we're offered the mirage that we can have community without commitment. That we can have faith without discipleship. That we can have the kingdom without the king. And the cultural ambition that we are confronted with is to replicate the kingdom vision of a good life, a future world of good things, of, of equal rights, of dignity, of freedom, of love and equality, but to do all of those things without the way of Jesus and the person of Jesus at the center of it. And in our culture, while the king might seem to be removed from the throne, the seat has not been vacated. It has been usurped. And it has been usurped by me and by you. The current reality that we are faced with is that the individual is now enthroned in this new kingdom. Our compass for who we are is not pointed outwards, it's pointed inwards. We have become our own source of meaning. And we only let people into our lives if they affirm and confirm our self-appointed North Star. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says this in a secular age. He calls the current space we're in the age of authenticity. 
an age which traces its roots back through the sexual revolution, past the post-war boom, and all the way to the romantic period that began in the late 18th century. You see poets like William Wordsworth and Lord Byron, and what they did is they valued expressive individualism and a deep trust in one's emotional responses. And it was an untamed nature that they saw as authentic, and they contrasted it with soul-destroying structures of modern life and institutions. And in our own age, authenticity is defined by how true you are to yourself. Not how true you are to your calling, to your community, or to your covenant relationships. But to yourself. And this is what we all face, and I'm in this camp as well. We want all of God's blessings without submitting to his loving rule and reign. We want progress in the space of the supernatural in our relationship with the Holy Spirit without a commitment to his presence. We want justice in the world without a heart for his people. That's why social media is so convenient. We can make a post and that's justice. We want the horizontal implications of the gospel for our society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners with God. And we want our society to conform to our standards of moral purity without conforming to God's standard of personal holiness. This is the line. We say... Your kingdom come, my will be done here on earth as I feel it is in heaven. This is the struggle for those who are faced with Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. And this is the struggle that we face when Jesus shows up at the gates of our heart. I want all that you are saying, Jesus. I want every fruit of the Spirit. I want to be free from anxiety. I want to be joyful and generous. I want all of it. But I'm not sure that I want you. How might we move past that? I think it starts today with recognizing where we have closed the gates to Jesus and said, I just want the good stuff that comes with it. It's good to desire the things that you're desiring, but would we start to do it in the ways that he invites us to do it? The ways that we pursue hope are the ways that Jesus does. And we can get so frustrated looking at the world around us and seeing people who are crooks and criminals achieving so-called success in the world around us. But the, the phrase I said earlier of what it means to flourish remains true for us today. Flourishing by the definition of success within our culture is very different in the kingdom of God. It's the fruits of the Spirit coming to life within you. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and, um, and pray with me. And I just want you to continue to listen.
when I think of Palm Sunday and I think of Easter Sunday, like Palm Sunday is really good. Jesus has arrived. But Easter Sunday is so much better. Almost, but not quite as good as Easter. And I wonder if we have gotten to spaces in our life where we have settled. And we have settled with Palm Sunday. Jesus has shown up at my gates. I see all the good things that come with him. And that's good enough. But Palm Sunday is almost as good. It's not Easter Sunday. It's not the resurrection power transforming the world, providing the salvation that we hope for in a way that we could have never expected. I think there's something for everyone this morning. And there's something for me to receive this morning. How might our hearts actually allow Jesus to take the throne of the kingdom that we desire? I don't want a kingdom without the king. I want the king and all that he brings with him. So Heavenly Father, we offer this morning to you. As we come to the front and we'll partake in communion, as we remember who you are, I wonder how our hearts could begin to open up. How our lives can begin to look differently than simply wanting the same thing as everyone else. For those who have maybe faced a little bit of that confusion, the, the things that Christianity wants is the same things that our culture wants. I pray that you would show to each and every one of us that your way is not just the action, but it's the heart that sits behind it. That it is constant, that it stays, that it sustains. So Holy Spirit, we offer this space to you wherever we might find ourselves. I pray for those in the room that are feeling this deep sense of conviction, that they want the kingdom without the king, that they've waved those palm branches in their arrival of Jesus yelling, save us, but save me in my way. I pray that there is a relinquishment of control, that there is a submission of lives, and that there is a rest and a peace that washes over them that comes from a relationship with you. Holy Spirit, heal and do a work within each of our hearts this morning so that we might turn our eyes to you and invite you in. Yeah, I, I just, I feel for, for there are some in the room that, that feel so, so much like people of Israel waving those branches that you so desperately want the right thing you want all the good things of the kingdom and you want salvation you believe that Jesus is is the king that's arriving and you're declaring it with the crowds but you're saying it do it in my way and this has been a block for you 
Holy Spirit, I pray that there is just a removal of that wall so that we can walk into the freedom that you have for us. If you're one of those people in this room, as we go through communion, I would just invite you, after you partake in communion, would you come off to the side and pray with someone? We just want to stand with you. Holy Spirit, we offer this morning to you for the spaces that we're in, for the ways in which you meet our hearts. May we know you. May we remember you. And may we be more like you. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.